Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I am so glad you're here today. I I could not be more honored or excited about the guest that I have today. Um, Dr. James Wadley is an associate professor and chair of counseling and human services, master of human services department at Lincoln University. As a scholar practitioner, he's a licensed professional counselor and maintains a private practice in the state of Pennsylvania and in New Jersey. He's the founding director of the scholarly interdisciplinary journal, the Journal of Black Sexuality and Relationships, University of Nebraska Press. He's also founder and principal of the Association of Black Sexologists and Clinicians and his professional background in human sexuality, education, educational leadership, and program development has enabled him to galvanize scholars and practitioners in the field of sexology across the world. And I know that all that is true because I know you and then you're an amazing guy. So thank you for coming and joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on uh, your podcast. This is awesome. And I will say this is a maiden voyage for me in doing podcasts. So uh, it's good to know that I'm in good hands with you. Well, we'll we'll just go a little bit at a time. I think you, <laughs> as with as with dating and sex, you'll be fine. We'll just go really slow. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> getting you there, James. So, welcome. Thank you. You know, you know, James. Um, first of all, Doctor Wadley, I'm so glad to have you, and I am honored because of the work that you do. You know, I have a particular interest in, and we've talked about this in American and other minorities finding their way to help and healing. And as we have previously discussed, African-Americans are traditionally kind of underserved in going to mental health and addiction programs and nowhere more so probably than around sexuality. Now, we all don't like to go out there and talk about this stuff, but it's particularly a kind of a hidden secret in the black community. And I know that you and I share some history in, in doing the work of sex addiction and healing porn and sex addiction, those issues. And I'm sure they show up in that community as well. So can you just give us a little background? You know, what are you finding? What are you seeing? What are you doing? And how are you bringing our world together a little bit? Yeah, I think that, well, I've been in the field now for what, uh, a couple decades. I don't necessarily have a number. Uh, that I can attach to it. But in terms of working with persons of African descent or in particular African Americans, sometimes there is still misinformation and misconceptions and even mistrust around the mental health profession as well as the medical profession. And that comes from a history, uh, or at least a portion of a history, of us not 
getting the treatment that we possibly could or should, and as well as the uh, notion that sometimes healing comes in a non-medical form where uh, one can engage in sharing his or her story with you know, someone in the community who is accessible. And that person might be a barber or a beautician or the pastor or someone in the community who is open to listening to uh, our stories. But what's unfortunate is that sometimes people in the community, while they may be able to listen and possibly even give advice, they're not mental health professionals. And the scope or the breadth of their knowledge may be somewhat limited and may only be based upon the experiences that they may have in that immediate community. So uh, my work is to try my best to empower not only those people who are uh, indigenous to those communities, but also try to work with folks who work with folks in those communities in having a a level of uh, acceptance and appreciation and, and being able to celebrate diversity. And you're you're speaking, James, in broad, pretty broad strokes about mental health, and and you didn't really even mention addiction, particularly, which I would say falls under mental health. But we're really talking about sex, and sex is even more shameful, more uncomfortable, less something you talk to a stranger about. And and I wonder how it is for you, not just being someone who's dealing with mental health issues, but actually dealing with sex. Right. And so, thank you for sharing that. So, part of the work that I've been doing, and you know, and a few of my colleagues is that we actively try to work towards people having what's called a sex-positive approach towards sexuality and moving beyond some of the shame and the guilt and the maybe even trauma that uh, tends to emerge with some individuals, couples, and families. That trauma sometimes comes from uh, a lot of stereotypes and myths regarding the sexual expression of persons of African descent, where there may be an expectation or, or stereotype around either sexuality or the way or the way that one experiences their, his or her sexual expression. And so that in and of itself is challenging. And the church has some piece of this too, in terms of it kind of being a de facto first place to go when I'm needing support, help, or direction. Is that also a part of the story? Yeah. And, you know, kind of what I was sharing earlier in that, you know, if you're working with or talking with your pastor about uh, your relationship or sexuality, your pastor may or may not have the medical knowledge that's associated with healthy sexual functioning. And so uh, in my work with pastors, you know, that becomes a challenge because then I have to spend time talking about their conceptions around sexuality, and sometimes their, conceptual, their conceptions of sexuality are based upon stereotypes and myths. It's interesting, James, because, you know, I have spent some time in religious communities doing training. So, you know, I've spent time with more conservative Christians. I've spent time with Mormons. I've spent time with more conservative Jews. And it seems like in, in those communities, there's also kind of a, in other words, when you get into a more conservative religious community, there seems to be a tendency to keep things amongst ourselves. Right. And I know also as a gay man and having written about gay culture that when you're in a minority of whatever kind, that minorities tend to want to keep their problems to themselves. They don't want to let the larger culture say that, you know, we have this problem because then the larger culture might say, oh, we knew you guys were screwed up and we knew you were screwed up in that way anyway. So uh, it just sort of adds fodder to minorities wanting to not be pushed around for having problems. So I would imagine that we both run into these issues, but in different ways. Right. Yeah. And I guess 
for me, what resonates the most from what you were talking about is that I thought about uh, the notion of access, where if, you know, as an African-American male therapist, you know, I, I would say probably 70 to 80% of my practice is uh, with persons of African descent. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I have, I have a robust, I have a full and robust practice. But if I am someone who doesn't identify as being uh, of African descent or is white or European or whatever, then I may not have access to those communities who I may be trying to attract. And so for uh, some of my colleagues who are white or European American, I talk to them about, you know, reaching out to community leaders who have access to African Americans in order for them to uh, offer a different kind of service and quality of services, quality of service to persons of African descent. Well, I know that you and I have a lot in common in terms of doing a lot of education, you know, whether it is educating pastors or rabbis or community leaders about, you know, how to direct people to get help. But I wanted to ask you something kind of really very basic. When I go to sex addiction meetings in America, I see a disproportionate amount of white people. I don't see as many Latinos. I don't see as many Asians. I don't see as many African-Americans. And yet I know from working all over the world, as you do, and as I do, that when we go into other cultures, we see these issues at the same rates in other cultures that we see them in America. So it's not obviously not a white problem. It's a people problem and a trauma problem and a you know, interpersonal problem, what keeps people of color out of 12-step support, for example? Right. I would say that if you attend a, a meeting and then I walk in and I don't see anyone who looks like me, that, that would be my first response. Like, well, damn, you know, where are all the black people? And then it will, I'll tell you, it will reduce the likelihood that I'll return or that I'll even share because it's the assumption that the people in the room can't quite understand what I'm going through. It's interesting you say that, James, because I think about an addict going to a meeting and they're always looking for, you know, the first time someone goes to a 12-step support group and they've never been before, they're looking for the reasons that they don't belong there and that all the other people do. So, you know, somebody goes to a 12-step meeting, they say, oh, those people are all so much sicker than me. I don't belong here. And what you're saying is, is that someone who might have a problem that would lead them to not want to be in that room anyway, now has an additional reason that they don't want to be in that room, which is they feel like no one can really relate to them. Right. And... Even for, well, I I think the dynamic that I'm describing, I I think that is uh, indicative of people, of group processes, where if I were a woman, I were to walk into a meeting where there are a bunch of men, I'm assuming that some women may not feel as if the men will be able to get their story. And so they may, it may reduce the likelihood that they may show up again. Well, I, I just did a podcast with a friend of mine named Sam Louis, and Sam is in the Asian community. He's a, a first-generation Chinese gentleman in America, and he talks about, you know, when he went to his first meeting, he, he glommed on to the first person who looked vaguely Asian. It didn't matter to him what, you know, they could be Japanese or Korean. It didn't matter. He just wanted someone who was like him in some way. And so I guess what you're saying is that in order to maybe improve rates of healing in the African-American community, we need more support groups that reflect people of color, that have people of color. How do you get there if you're not there? Right. So that's when it goes back to spending time in the community where, you know, I can go to a barber shop or whatever, and let's say it's a whole bunch of guys in there and I strike up a conversation or someone strikes up a conversation around sexual acting out or out of control sexual behavior. 
some of the guys may chime in and say, oh, I do this and I do that or whatever. And then I throw out the notion that, hey, well, you know, have you ever thought about not having sex when you shouldn't, i.e. at your job or downloading porn right. at your house or whatever? So then folks will look up and be like, well, yeah, you know what? I Sometimes I struggle too. I don't know how much guys will disclose in this in that public forum, but at least that's where the conversation begins. As the conversation continues, maybe not in that one visit, but if I show up the following week or the or the, every other week at a particular time, then folks will kind of get a grasp that, hey, maybe my maybe my sexual expression in my relationship should look a little bit different than what I've been doing because it has been problematic with me getting a job or keeping a job or maintaining a healthy relationship with the people around with the with my friends and family around me. So you're kind of talking about planting seeds. Planting seeds, right. Mm-hmm. So then if I say, all right, well, I'm hosting a meeting where guys can come and talk about relationships and maybe sex, will they show up? Maybe not. But what I could do is actually hold a meeting there at the barber shop where it's informal but formal where I have an opportunity to talk about healthy sexuality in the context that the folks are situated in. So if I have to go to a meeting on the other side of town, and when I get to the meeting on the other side of town, I see that everyone in the room is white. Why would I want to go back? Mm-hmm. Based upon the assumption that, yeah, it's for relationships and maybe uh, sexual acting out, but why would I want to go back when there's no one in here who looks like me? So if I had a professional who was willing to go into, say, the barbershop or the church or whatever to talk about these sexual health issues, then it may increase the likelihood that I'll go back because I'll have another reason for being in that circumstance in the first place. So it's kind of like therapy. You know, in our world, we say you got to be where the client is. You got to go where they are emotionally and go into their world before you can expect them to understand yours. And you're kind of saying the same thing. You're saying, I got to bring these messages into that community, into the community and start planting seeds for people to turn to each other in their own environment. Yes. And does the church help in America? Do you find that the church will have, for example, I know a lot of Christian organizations that will do, you know, men's men's marital groups, men's relationship groups, you know, they do kind of faith-based support groups for men around intimacy issues kind of thing. Is there any of that kind of stuff going on in the African-American community, in the church? Uh, There is, but without trained, seasoned and trained professionals to recognize you know, what it looks like, then the conversations may not be as in-depth as they possibly could be in talking about those behaviors. So Dr. Wadley, what what messages are you bringing out there in the communities where you're going? Now, I know that you've been all over the world. I mean, you're running, you're running to Black communities in Africa, in, uh, in the Caribbean. I think, uh, I, I forget where you're going, some place that I've never been really soon, but I mean, you're bringing... <laughs> a message of, I think, openness and diversity to this community in ways that you're really making a difference. And I guess I want to understand what made you kind of launch this journey, because you were just kind of like the rest of us, a local therapist, doing local therapy, working in a university, having a practice. And now you're kind of, you know, a a leader for healing in your community across the world. Like, how'd that happen? Well, I immediately have to say I have great people around me. And what makes them great is that they offer me unconditional support in terms of information as well as access to resources. Mm. And, um, you know, I guess a lot of things that I do, I don't know, 
hell, man, I don't have a sophisticated answer for it. I kind of shoot from the hip and just go. Mm-hmm. Um, I and, and this is non-clinical language. I allow my spirit to lead me, and to mm-hmm. some extent, impulsive. And when I go, like if I go somewhere to visit, I'll do a site visit, and my next thought is, you know, I have a nice number of folks around me who would be interested in learning from this different community or environment where we can all grow from. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I visited uh, St. Thomas four years ago and. I thought it would be really nice if I had other professionals, and particularly persons of African descent, to come to St. Thomas to uh, have conversations about working with people in our community. And our Spring Roundtable series has blossomed. And then uh, last year, I had I was fortunate enough to take my students abroad to South Africa. And while I was there, I scouted it out and I decided I wanted to take some professionals over to South Africa. Mm -hmm. And so we went. And so it's not just me. Again, I have a lot of great people around me and, you know, a lot of things wouldn't be possible, obviously without prayer, but, you know, a lot of things wouldn't be possible without, you know, surrounding myself by really positive and inspirational people. And hell, I'll go ahead and say it. You're one of them. <laughs> you, you've done, before I knew you, I only knew you to do extraordinary work near and far. And I'd be doggone if I didn't say to myself, how can I get to be like Rob Weiss? And I'm not just blowing, blowing smoke up your ass, but I mean, that's the truth. You, are, you have been doing extraordinary things for, hell, a number of years, probably de- a decade or two. Does that mean, James, that I'm going to get to drag you kicking and screaming into an online website for African-American people seeking help, a a culturally sensitive place where they can see their own and feel their own and work on their own and you're going to lead? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to put, try to put you on record here because I see, I mean, James, what, what I'm saying to all of you guys, and, and I'm just reflecting in front of James is, you know, I know where the future is and it isn't sitting in a meeting in any particular church basement. It isn't sitting with a therapist in any particular office. It, the future is online. The future of healing is online. And it does seem to me, and James and I have been talking about this, that if marginalized communities or communities that feel uncomfortable, or even women, for example, feel uncomfortable walking into a church basement with a bunch of guys, or people of color feel uncomfortable walking into a room with a bunch of white people that they don't identify, then why can't we create culturally sensitive environments online where people really feel safe and connected and like it mirrors their own experience? This is what I'm trying to convince Dr. Wadley to get involved with. So y'all can help me. I appreciate that. Write him. You now know how to reach him because if you're going to lead James, you know, and I'll just say this to you, you know that I walk into rooms where I talk to two or 300 people and that's great. So do you. Sometimes we're lucky. We get to talk to 500 people. If we're really lucky, a thousand, but I know I can go online and 100,000 people will see what I have to say, what I have to write. You know, so anyway, I'm going to keep pulling you along, Dr. Wadley, until we get there. But I do have a question for you. I'm curious, you know, I could tell you if you ask me the top 10 sexual issues I see going on amongst the people I treat. I can tell you that the three issues that are the top issues that the men I'm working with are struggling with right now are online porn, for sure, hookup apps, for sure, and then probably following that by your traditional affairs, seeing prostitutes or some version of anonymous sex or something like it. Are the issues different in your community? No, they're the absolute same. So there you go. I I mean, I want to say if we were able to get men of any color, of any race in a room to talk about the issue, which I've always found to be true, you know, gay men, straight men, once we start talking about the issue, we do share, we do come together. We come together in our struggle. We come together in the pain around what we're, what we're struggling with. 
And so it's a matter in part of getting people to talk and open their mouths and be safe enough or feel safe enough, no matter who's in the room, to start talking about what hurts them. And then we come together in a way that's beyond race. I, at least that's been my experience. Right. You're absolutely correct. And I think the, uh, the key and the operative word that you're using is getting them to feel safe. Mm-hmm. And what I was alluding to earlier is that traditional forms of masculinity or hegemonic masculinity means that guys don't share or they're resistant to sharing because sharing means vulnerability. So if there is going to be a platform that's online, folks would have to know that there may be some level of anonymity, but in anonymity, there is the expectation that one would share whatever it is that's going on with him or her, uh, share authentically what, what's going on with authentically and honestly what's going on with him or her. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's a challenge. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. I'm curious, you know, in this country, we have people of color with a history of oppression and, you know, minority status and violence, you know, everything that's happened in this country. And I know that just, you know, I'm, I'm part of an invisible minority. Being a gay person, I understand what was what it was like just in my own little way to be called fag and, you know, live through all of that stuff that I lived through in my own time. So I know that I, in other words, I know how prejudice against homosexuals has affected the gay community in America around sex. I could tell you that. How has cultural oppression in the black community affected intimacy and sexuality in the black community? In terms of sexuality, there is no difference between other oppressed communities where there are you know, a significant number of folks who will act out using porn, a significant number of folks who will, you know, use hookup apps or whatever. Mm -hmm. But again, uh, the intervention, at least that I try to do with oppressed people, not just uh, African-Americans, is trying to get them to talk about it. And that in and of itself has its challenges because sometimes people can't readily identify what systemic oppression is or how it manifests itself in their uh, immediate relationship. So, one of the things that I run into in my world, and I think you probably run into it even more in yours, although I'm not sure, is that I see a lot of issues around sex and relationship that surprising to me are more divided by class than anything else. In other words, for and I'll give you an example in my world. If I've got a man who's sexually acting out and he's married and I'm working with a family that has, you know, is making over $100,000 a year or more, that couple can decide to separate or divorce, that woman in that relationship can say, I love you, but you're hurting me. And I don't, these affairs and this act, that's not okay with me and all the sex you're having. And I'm going to leave you. I'm going to get a a lawyer. I'm going to divorce you, you know? And, and so a woman who has financial means has the ability to say to her man, you know, you don't get to do this anymore or I'm out of here. But it seems to me that in a coupleship where they don't have the financial means, when you've got three kids running around, that she might just have to put up with whatever he's doing because she needs him around to make sure those kids have clothes on their back. And I see that bifurcation, that split everywhere. And I'm just wondering if you experience it as well. 
Yes. So the more resources or money you have, the greater or or that both partners might have, the greater the likelihood it is that one may choose to take a different course uh, with regards to the relationship, whether it's separation or divorce. And so that, uh, yeah, I see that as well. Can you say a little more about that? Like how you see the African-American community divided by class in terms of the clients you're treating and the issues that come up? For example, you know, we talked about people who live in a community might be more comfortable only seeing members of their own community in their support groups. If you are working in a much more diverse world, if you're working in a different environment where you're seeing lots of different people and working with lots of different people, do you then feel more comfortable coming into an environment where you might get help, where there are more white people or where you don't see as many people? In other words, is there that difference too? Like a comfort level in getting help or staying for help? There may be, but then that assumes that one is open to working with someone who doesn't look like them, as well as possibly comes from a different class background. One of the challenges that I believe that exists in our profession is that some therapists, some of us, are elitist, meaning that we (laughs) we maintain our private practice in a particular area of town, but in order to get to that particular area of town, we have to drive through oppressed communities, and then we never offer our services to oppressed communities. And so, you know, the the possibility of offering, and this is a little plug for you, the, the possibility of offering an online uh, support system for people who are... James, it's not a plug for me because I'm going to drag your butt in there if this happens. So just watch it. <laughs> Both of us will be in it together. There you go. But, you know, we as therapists and as healers, you know, have to figure out how to, again, gain access or provide access to those folks who probably can't afford us. That's right. And that's, again, you know, I I hate to preach the internet to you in front of all these folks, but, you know, when I think about the opportunity to truly democratize health, mental health care and addiction care, it has to be online because there'll never be uh, enough time to go see a therapist. There'll never be enough money and resources for so many people to get the help they need. But if they're motivated, they can go online and get it for free. And I think that's really where we, that's where I'm pushing you <laughs> to put some energy. So folks, if you're listening to this and you're listening to me pushing James, it's because I want him to uh, spearhead some support for the African-American community online in ways that I'm trying to do for the in sexual health. So if you hear me pushing him, feel free to write him an email and say, yes, James, you should be doing that. <laughs> Tell me one more thing before we go. Like what what has been one of the prouder moments for you in the work that you're doing? I mean, you're you're now you went from being again sort of a regional local person to being an international an international person by pursuing a dream of helping people in in a way that is really working for you. How is that changing you and your practice? Oh, wow, it's been phenomenal. Uh, I think just meeting different people with different ideas who live in, live in different areas of, uh, of the world. It's been awesome. Uh, I just came from Cuba, what, two days ago. Wow. And what was awesome about it was that... People have sex in Cuba, right? Yeah, they have a lot of sex in Cuba. They have a lot <laughs> of sex everywhere. You just got to figure out where to go. Woo-hoo! But yeah, while I was there in Cuba, Cuba is one of the few places, at least that I've ever been to, that hasn't been colonized. And because it hasn't been colonized, you, I had an opportunity to experience the authenticity of Cuban people, food, and culture. And it was so good. And it was so awesome. And uh, I guess at this stage in my career, I'm really able to 
you know, just kind of sit back and absorb how wonderful uh, these different communities that I've been able to access, how beautiful these communities really are. And so I'm proud of, again, the people around me to enable me to, you know, venture to these different places. And man, this is awesome. (laughs) And I can't say it any differently. (laughs) I'm on this awesome journey. And the journey is basically centered around learning. Mm-hmm. And being able to uh, appreciate and celebrate people who look like me and people who don't look like me and people who come from different backgrounds, different lifestyles. And it's great. James, you're a gift to our community and a gift to your community. And uh, I wondered if you could tell me how people can reach you if they want to write you a note or get a hold of you. They can reach me at on my website, www.drjameswadley.com. Uh, they can reach me on Twitter at PhD James W. They can send me an email at PhD James W at yahoo.com, or they can find me through uh, my university website at Lincoln University. That's www.lincoln.edu. Or you know what? You can even call me directly on the phone. You can reach me at 267-249-9452. Wow. You're like a consumer object, James. We can just buy you, order you, find you anywhere. That's awesome. Um, and I am waiting, by the way, which for something I'm going to also encourage you to do, which is we need a, a, a blog every other week on Psychology Today about black sexology in America. Oh, wow. So when you're getting ready to write, you know, let's get together and talk to the people at Psychology Day and get that blog started because you have enough people to be writing with you, enough heroes around the world that that could be a really useful thing. So I hope you start doing some writing. Dr. Wadley is an international expert in black sexology. He has founded journals. He has founded clinical organizations. And gosh, I don't even think he's 50 or I'm just going to say that. So that is so kind of you. Dr. Wadley, it's a pleasure. Let's keep working together. James, have a great day. We appreciate your time. I know people are reaching out to you and we'll be talking again. Thanks, Rob. Take care. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chemsex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.